This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome to the One Verse Podcast. This is episode number 60, and I'm your teacher, Jeremy Myers. Uh, This episode of the One Verse Podcast provides a short summary of Genesis chapter 4. That way, if you haven't listened to all of the episodes on Genesis chapter 4, this one sort of gives you, gets you up to speed, gives you a summary, a review. Uh, If you have listened to them, it does give you that review. Uh, Also, if, if you like what you hear in this episode, it might encourage you to go back and listen to some of the others simply to learn a little bit more. Uh, If this is your first introduction to the One Verse podcast, then you can do something similar with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. There's also summary episodes for each of those chapters, and there's links in the show notes uh, for you to go listen to those. Uh, You'll also be able to download them on iTunes, I believe. So uh, even though, of course, even though today's episode is just a summary of Genesis 4, I'm also going to look ahead a little bit into the flood account uh, and even mention Genesis chapter 50 briefly. Uh, This is going to help us understand what Genesis is all about. Uh, That's important because Genesis is sort of the introduction to the entire Bible. Uh, And and of course, after today, I'm moving forward into the New Testament, into the gospel. So I don't know if we'll ever get back into Genesis considering how much I want to teach from various other places in the Bible. So anyway, that's why I also want to sort of summarize Genesis for you today. Also, we're only uh, 10 days away from Christmas or so by the time you listen to this, uh, or at least by the time it gets published tomorrow. And I want to give you a couple Christmas presents this year. First, I have a new theology course that's ready. It's a course on the biblical definition of church. Uh, So if you have questions about the church, how it functions... This is going to be a course for you. Uh, you. You do have to become a member of RedeemingGod.com to take it, but the uh, faith membership is free, so if you want the course, you can take it that way. Now, uh, after you take the course, or if you're already a member, if you want to take some of my other courses, also get some free ebooks, additional things, you can join the Hope or Love membership levels. Those who do that will be entered to win another Christmas gift for me this year, which is a free one-year love membership. But uh, you have to become a member of either the Hope or Love levels to be entered. Uh, and I'll give away one gift membership for every 10 people who sign up. All right, so uh, to get started, just go to redeeminggod.com register. And, uh, you know, by the way, if you enjoy my blog or podcasting, joining a membership level is sort of a way you can say thank you to me and also support my writing and teaching. I I don't know if you're aware of this, but writing, uh, publishing a blog and podcast, it it costs, it's it's quite expensive, believe it or not, costs me several hundred dollars each month. I, I do have ads on my site and book sales, but those do not cover the costs. So by becoming a paying member of RedeemingGod.com with the Hope or Love membership levels, you know, you not only get a bunch more resources and access to some of my teachings, but it also enables me to continue writing and teaching in the future. So anyway, if you join, thank you so much for your support, and I hopefully you enjoy some of the things I give to you as a way of saying thank you. Just go to RedeemingGod.com slash register 
to join today. Oh, and one more thing. I did a quick informal survey on Facebook this week about a new way to sign off on my podcast episode each week. I got so many good suggestions, I can't really pick between them. So I'm going to try out a few over the next couple of weeks. And you can listen to the end of the podcast today to see if yours was selected. Okay? So with all of that in mind, let's dive into our summary of Genesis chapter 4 today. Okay, so Genesis 4 opens with Adam and Eve living outside of the Garden of Eden. And they have two sons. Eve, back in Genesis 3, was told by God that a man would come from her who would reverse the curse uh, and crush the head of the serpent and then return them to the Garden of Eden. And by the way Eve names her firstborn son Cain, uh, she believed, we see that she believed Cain is this promised seed, this one who would bring them back into the garden. And so we believe that as Cain grew up, This is the story that sort of guided his life. Uh, He believed, he came to believe because of what his parents told him, that he would be the savior of his family, the deliverer of his family, the one who would bring them back into the garden. So at one point, Cain apparently comes to think, comes to believe, that since his parents were kicked out of the garden for stealing God's fruit, maybe... He can remedy the situation by giving God's fruit back to him. So that's what he does, the uh, opening verses of Genesis chapter 4. He brings God an offering of fruit. But, much to Cain's shock and dismay, God tells Cain that he's not really interested in the fruit. So uh, Cain's younger brother, Abel, he sees what Cain is doing, and so Abel imitates Cain. But, but Abel is not a farmer. Cain's a farmer, so he brought fruit. So Abel, in his mind, he says, well, I also want to bring something to God. My older brother did, and I look up to him. I respect him. I, I want to worship and thank God as well, but I'm not a farmer, so what can I bring? Abel is, he is um, a shepherd, and so he brings what he has, which is a young lamb and some milk and cheese. It's a live offering, by the way. Go back and listen to some of the podcast episodes. There's no blood sacrifice here, all right? There's no blood spilt. Uh, so uh, Abel brings a live lamb, some milk, and some cheese. And I explain how we know all that in the podcast episode where I talked about that. Anyway, much to Cain's dismay, God accepts Abel's offering and is pleased with it. <laughs> now, why? Why did God reject Cain's but accept Abel's offering? Well, uh, it's not because Cain brought fruit and Abel brought an animal. No, it's, it's because of the motivation behind the offerings. Cain was trying to manipulate God to get God to do something, whereas Abel was just expressing gratitude and thanksgiving for what God had given to him. All right, that's the difference between the two offerings. Because uh, later in, in Scripture, God does accept offerings of fruit. So that's fine if you bring it with with gratitude. Anyway, uh, now we have Cain enter into this rivalry with Abel. Cain is the one who wanted to be the savior and deliverer of his family, to rescue his family. But because now God favored Abel's offering, Cain sees Abel as a threat, as a rival. It looks to him like Abel is trying to take over the position 
of savior and deliverer of the family. So they enter into this rivalry, and we know how that ends. It ends with Cain murdering his brother Abel out in the fields. And this rivalry leads to murder, murder of brother against brother, and this is described as the first sin in the Bible. Of course, after this, uh, the blood of Abel cries out to God from the ground for revenge, but uh, God wants to stop the cycle of revenge and retaliation that uh, both he and Cain know will follow. Cain's very nervous about this himself, and he, he tells God that uh, anybody, people are going to search, search him out and try to kill him because he killed his brother. So uh, what God does is very amazing here. He puts a mark on Cain to try to stop this cycle of retaliation and revenge. And furthermore, he, he, he allows Cain to blame and scapegoat him for what happened. All right? And, uh, and then God sends Cain out to wander the earth. Now, Cain doesn't actually do a whole lot of wandering. He just goes eastward, and he founds a city instead. And what this shows us is that civilization, culture, is founded on rivalry and scapegoating violence, especially murder. Um, again, we talked about that, I think, in the last couple episodes. Now, as further evidence that rivalry and escalating violence are at the foundation of human culture and civilization, Genesis 4 ends, and we looked at this last time in episode 59, ends with the account of Lamech, in sort of which the whole process is repeated, but much more briefly, much more succinctly. He is injured by a man, and so he kills this man for hurting him. And then Lamech tells his two wives, listen, if God said that Cain would be avenged sevenfold for murdering his brother, then I should be avenged 77-fold if anyone seeks to murder me, if anyone seeks to kill me. You know, Cain had no right to murder his brother, but I had right because I was injured. Again, and then that's sort of how the chapter ends. What the author of Genesis is showing you, I believe is Moses, uh, is showing us that, that this is the motivation, this is the attitude, these are the actions even, that lie at the foundation of civilization and culture. Here's what happens. We engage in rivalry with each other. All humans, because of imitation, we are in rivalry with each other. Ultimately, this rivalry leads to an es- it leads to violence and then to a rapid escalation in violence. All right? we, we all feel, like Lamech does, and even Cain did, that our violence is justified. Right? But everyone else's violence toward us is wrong. So, so we never allow harm that is done to us to go unpunished, and then when we do harm to others, we feel like they have no right to retaliate. So, so we lash out in ways that only increase and escalate in violence, but then you do the same thing to me. Here's how it looks. I insult you. I mean, you feel, well, that was unjustified. So you slap me back, <laughs> right? Well, I figure, well, why did he do that? I didn't deserve that. So I stab you. And then you shoot me, kill me, So my family comes and kills you and your family, right? And then all your friends and relatives come and kill all my friends and relatives and burn down my town. (laughs) And and this is how it goes. Uh, With all feuds, blood feuds, wars, Hatfields and McCoys, World War I, uh, political cycles, this is what happens, okay? The normal, now, 
After a couple times of this cycle occurring, and too many people dying, humans sort of discovered or, or intuited a way out of this cycle of violence, and that way out is the scapegoat sacrifice. And we've already seen hints and glimpses of this all over the place in Genesis 3 and 4. And what happens is we make scapegoats out of other human beings. We blame them. When, when two groups, two people, or two groups of people are in this escalation of violence, they look for a way out. And this way out is typically to blame a third-party outsider. The two groups can then create peace with each other to come together in unity by pointing the finger at a third party, who usually had nothing whatsoever to do with the original problem, original war, the original struggle, rivalry, violence, right? But then they both act out in violence toward that third party, and peace is created. All right, so in Genesis 3 and 4, we've seen this a little bit already. Remember, Adam and Eve, uh, God comes and says, what have you done? Right? Adam blames his wife and blames God. Eve blames the serpent, right? Cain blames God. Lamech blames God. What we're seeing, really, is, is although humans do make scapegoats of other humans, the ultimate scapegoat, the ultimate person we blame, is God himself. Now, much of the rest of Scripture seeks to reveal that very truth to us. Yes, the truth about the scapegoat sacrifice, uh, how we sacrifice, kill, blame, accuse other human beings, but also how ultimately God is the scapegoat we blame. He takes the blame for most of the things we humans do. Now, this truth is revealed all over the place in the Old Testament, but ultimately, perfectly, finally, it has its best revelation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This really is one of the primary truths of the Gospels. Jesus becomes a scapegoat to reveal scapegoating. It's a huge concept and topic to discuss. I, I write about it, some in my book, The Atonement of God, some other books that I'm hoping to come out with in this coming year. Also in some of my courses, which I'm coming out with. Uh, I will be talking a lot more about this. In fact, even in the next, if you want to learn a little bit more, I will be talking about it in the next two podcast episodes that we clo close out 2016 with, when we move into the Gospels, and then uh, one from the Gospels, one from the book of Revelation. Um, but, but as we close out our time in Genesis, I, I sort of want to give you a brief glimpse on how this truth about, about human violence and scapegoating sacrifices is revealed right here in Genesis. So Genesis 4 is about the, the introduction of sin into the world. How it leads to the murder of brother against brother, fratricide. All, all, all violence, by the way, all murder is fratricide. Violence of brother against brother, murder of brother against brother. Anyway, and then Genesis 4 shows how this violence escalates out of control. Goes from murder of one against other to a sevenfold vengeance to 77-fold, right? Genesis 4, basically, if you could summarize it, Paul does a great job summarizing Genesis 4. Uh, he writes in Romans, sin leads to death, right? Um, in fact, not just Genesis 4, but Genesis 4 and 5 as well. Uh, sin is introduced in Genesis 4, and then Genesis 5, if you read it, you could, you could call Genesis 5 the death chapter of the Bible. Everybody, except for one person, Enoch, in, in Genesis chapter 5, everybody dies. So again, 
Uh, When we read in Romans 3.23 that the wages of sin is death, and in Romans 5.12 that death comes to all because all sin, I encourage you, don't think about Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because we don't see death coming upon them there, and and also, sin itself is not mentioned there. Instead, when Paul writes about sin leading to death, wages of sin is death, death comes to all because all sin, instead, think about Genesis 4 and 5, where sin is actually mentioned and death actually occurs. Anyway, what's the fix then? What's the cure for all of this? Again, ultimately, the, the, the answer, the, the fix, the cure is found in Jesus Christ. But, there, but there's a lot of revelation from God that exists, obviously, between Genesis chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 1, <laughs> between Genesis and the Gospels. So uh, just, take, just take the flood account, Genesis 6, 7, and 8, and even, even the chapters that follow, 9, 10, and 11. Um, this is the account of the flood, Genesis 6, 7, and 8, and then it leads to the Tower of Babel and the Table of Nations. In 9, 10, and 11. Uh, and not surprisingly, what the author of Genesis is doing, Moses again, which I believe is Moses, he takes everything we learned in Genesis chapter 4, showed it to us twice with Cain and Abel, and then with Lamech, all right? And what the author does is he repeats it all again. This cycle is shown to us again in a lot more detail in chapters 6 through 11. Really, the cycle is repeated multiple times in Genesis, and that's sort of the theme of Genesis. Again, I write about that in one of my upcoming books. The, the, the cycle introduced in Genesis 4, all right, just again, real quickly, is that because of imitation, we enter into rivalry with one another, and this rivalry leads to violence, and this violence escalates out of control until someone is scapegoated. Right? And it is this scapegoating that sort of creates a false peace which allows civilization to occur. All right? If it weren't for that scapegoating process, the violence would escalate out of control until it consumes everybody and everything. It would make civilization impossible. Um, so scapegoating makes civilization possible because uh, that escalation of violence is short circuited. By, by, you know, the two warring groups, they don't want to annihilate each other. They don't want to be annihilated. They see where that's going. So they, they, they put aside their differences by turning their violence on an outside third party. <laughs> the Russians did it. <laughs> that's what we see all over in the news today. Uh, anyway, that's what we're trying to do. The Russians did it. Anyway, um, usually th- this is some other group, another person, a group of people. But, but no matter who becomes the scapegoat, all right, God, especially in Scripture and in more religious societies, God is always blamed for it. You know, or, or at least he's called upon to justify the scapegoating violence, making God the ultimate scapegoat. We saw this when we went to war with uh, Iraq. You know, both Democrats and Republicans singing God Bless America on the courts, on the Supreme Court steps, right? Usually Democrats and Republicans hate each other, but when we find a third-party scapegoat, then we can come together arm in arm and sing God Bless America as we march off to war. That's, that's what's going on. It goes on all, all over the place in the Bible. So in Genesis 6, then, 
Again, 6 through 11, the author of Genesis is going to take us through this cycle again. In Genesis 6, as humans multiply upon the earth, and that's fine, God told them to do that in Genesis 1.28, what happens, though, is they spread only death and violence. This idea is repeated in chapter 6, verse 5 and 13. The uh, image of humanity provided in Genesis 6 is that they have come, become completely evil. And what does that mean? It means they engage in nothing but violence all the time. So Genesis 6 reveals that first stage, that first step in the cycle. Reveals rivalry, violence, and the escalation of violence. All right, But something very strange occurs in Genesis chapter 6. As the violence, the human violence, escalates out of control, (laughs) according to Genesis chapter 6, God responds to this violence with greater violence. According to the account in Genesis 6, God retaliates against violence with an all-consuming violence. In response to human violence that was spreading upon the earth, God sent a violent flood that engulfs the entire earth. <laughs> the escalation of violence went from sevenfold retaliation with Cain to 77-fold retaliation with Lamech to an unlimited flood and contagion of violence from God in Genesis 6. And I have great, great problems with this. If you've been reading my blog for a while, you know that uh, about four or five years ago, six years ago, I'm not sure how long it's been now, I started writing a book called When God Pled Guilty. And if you followed along, I had great problems explaining the flood. I now have sort of a solution to it. At least I think I do, and I'll put that out in some future book. But as a podcast listener, you get a little preview of that now. Uh, Here's how I read the violence of God in Genesis 6. First, I I don't read it as an account of God actually sending the worst violence ever committed in human history. All right, I believe, and I believe the Bible teaches, that uh, violence always leads to more violence. And God knows that, and he wants us to be nonviolent. So what I read going on in Genesis 6, 7, and 8 is an account of how People, we've seen this already in Genesis 3, Genesis 4, okay? Adam, what does he do? He blames Eve, yes, but ultimately he blames God. Cain, what does he do? Ultimately, he blames God. Lamech, what does he do? Ultimately, he blames God. So, did a flood come upon the earth? Yes, I believe it did, a worldwide flood. Did people believe that God sent that flood? Yes, I think that is what Genesis 6 is giving us the human perspective, the human explanation for the flood. Look, look, just today, go outside of the Bible for a little bit. We got a hurricane and flood that, uh, you know, takes uh, some part of the country, some part of the world, or an earthquake comes, or a storm comes, or disease or famine comes, right? A tsunami comes in Indonesia, whatever it is. And what do some people say? Oh, God sent it. God did that. They were so evil, God did that. What they're doing is they're making scapegoats out of humans, and ultimately, they're scapegoating God. They're blaming God. People blame God for these things. Okay, 
This doesn't mean that Revelation, I'm sorry, Genesis 6 is wrong. It means it's exactly right, (laughs) because it shows us what we humans do in blaming God. And that's how I read Genesis 6. It's not wrong. It's absolutely right. It's just the truth is in a different place than traditionally taught and believed. So again, we, it's, it's right in line, this truth, that we scapegoat, that we blame God for bad things. Uh, it's right in line with the truth seen in Genesis 3, Genesis 4, okay? And in fact, the rest of Scripture as well. Ultimately, though, corrected by Jesus Christ. Now, God does have definite activities in Genesis 6 that are reaffirmed and confirmed by Jesus in the New Testament. So God's activity during the flood uh, was to rescue and deliver as many people as possible. Turned out, in the end, to be only eight people, Noah and his family. At the end of the flood, though, get this. Remember, what does violence always lead to? Only more violence. God knows that. He's not dumb. He knows knows what violence leads to. So he's not going to engage in the greatest violence ever in human history. And in fact, even if he did, it would have been foolish of him to do so, because in Genesis 8, 21, what's the outcome? (laughs) Humans are still violent. God knows that. He didn't fix anything, cure anything, by sending all this violence. The, the flood did not cure or fix human violence. It says they're still violent. So when what happens in, in Gen, at the end of Genesis chapter 8, it's very interesting. God sort of creates a way out. He, he allows humans to start making animal sacrifices and eat meat. So these, right here at the end of Genesis chapter 8, these are the first blood sacrifices mentioned in the Bible. Now, now, technically, the escalating violence, human violence at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, and uh, the murder of Abel, and the murder of this man who who, who hurt Lamech, technically those are also uh, forms of sacrifices, but these are the first uh, real, uh, you know, blood sacrifices mentioned, especially animal sacrifices. What's happening here is God is allowing humans a way of escape out of the escalation of violence. Remember, when, when violence begins to escalate, the only way out of this is to make a sacrificial scapegoat victim. Now, in a prior to the flood, humans primarily did this by killing other humans. But God doesn't want humans to kill each other. He, he doesn't want violence to escalate out of control as it did before the flood. And so, In Genesis 8, at the end of the chapter, at the end of the flood, he allows animal sacrifice and animal death as a substitute for human scapegoating and human sacrifice and human death. It's not ideal, but it is a way of escape. I think we could say God allowed humans to engage in animal sacrifice as a form of sacred violence that lets off the steam of retaliatory violence. All right, the, the, the sacred violence of sacrifice sort of creates a temporary peace before violence, human violence, escalates out of control, before that contagion of violence takes over and consumes everybody in its path and everything in its, in its path. Now, if you read it very carefully, God does not want, need, desire, command these sacrifices. Uh, he, he doesn't instruct humans to give him sacrifices. The, the violent condition of the human heart in Genesis 8.21, uh, at the end of chapter 8, is exactly the same as it was in Genesis 6.5 and 13. God allows the animal sacrifice as an outlet 
which brings peace before the contagion of violence escalates out of control. Again, violence leads only to more and greater violence. But what we see in this flood account is that the cycle of escalating violence, it can be short-circuited by taking our violence out on an innocent victim. And in most societies, historically, the scapegoat victim was a human outsider, or maybe another human group or tribe, neighboring city, town, country, something like that. But in Genesis, it's an animal sacrifice. And yeah, it says this appeases God. The smell was pleasing to God. Um, but, but we know from other places in Scripture that the pleasing aroma, that, again, that's from the human perspective, this peace that settles upon them as they, as they kill this innocent animal. All right? They now no longer have this bloodlust towards other human beings because it has been temporarily satisfied in the death of the animal. And we attribute that also to God, pleasing aroma. Oh, God sent this peace. And later, God, in Scripture, says that he never commanded, wanted, or desired sacrifices, okay? So, again, sacrifices don't really do anything for God. They're not to appease God. God is never angry with sin in the first place. He's saddened by it, right? He's hurt by sin because it hurts us, and, and he loves us so much he doesn't want to see us hurt. But, but from the human perspective, sacrifice appeased God because sacrifice brought peace into the damaged relationship. And we say, oh, it's so miraculous. This peace had to come from God, and so therefore God must have wanted to sacrifice. He didn't. But he allows us to do it so that it's a way out, a way of escape from the escalation of violence that we have at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6. All right, so Genesis 6 to 8, the flood, we have this violence that escalates out of control and threatens to destroy all. And at the end of Genesis chapter 8, we have the scapegoating sacrifice, all right? And through it all, God is blamed for everything. And then, all right, so we have, we have violence, the violence that escalates out of control. And then we have the scapegoating sacrifice in Genesis chapter 8. And you remember the pattern? What does that mean we should have in Genesis 9, 10, and 11? That's right, the formation of civilization. Cain went off and founded a city. That's what we see here as well, the formation of civilization. And uh, that's what in Genesis 9, 10, and 11. So that's the pattern of uh, Genesis 4. We see the pattern there twice. And then a more detailed look at this pattern in Genesis 6 through 11. Uh, violence, that, which leads to scapegoating violence, which then allows the formation of human civilization. And that tells us what our civilization, what our culture, what all human civilization, what this world is founded upon. This is the pattern in history. This is the pattern in Scripture. Now, if you read some of my books or listen to this podcast, you know there is another way out. We don't always have to engage in scapegoating violence, in the scapegoat sacrifice, in the scapegoating victims to solve the problem of escalating violence. There is an alternative way of escape, an alternative to violence. There is an alternative method to deal with the problem. And again, uh, this, this alternative method is hinted at all over the place in the Old Testament. There, there's glimmers and glimpses of it everywhere. Uh, numerous places, even here in the book of Genesis. Uh, even beginning with the opening verses of Genesis chapter 1. Uh, one of the clearest glimpses of this, though, might be found at the end of the book of Genesis. Story of Joseph, last story of, of the Genesis account. 
And it is a story of, guess what? Rivalry between Joseph and his brothers. Then it leads to violence, which leads to an escalation of violence and threatens to destroy the entire family. Maybe, ultimately, eventually, (laughs) spiral out of control to consume all of Egypt and Canaan. Right? It could have led to war if the situation had been handled differently during that famine. But Genesis 50 ends with the key. And again, when violence escalates and threatens to destroy everybody and everything in its wake, the normal human way of escaping the flood of violence is to create a scapegoat victim. Blame them for everything that's gone wrong and then put them to death. But the other way, which turns out to be God's way, is practiced by Joseph, revealed by Joseph in Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21. Chapter, the book ends this way, basically. Uh, In this passage, Joseph is still second in command in Egypt, and his parents and his brothers have all moved to Egypt because of the famine. And uh, their father, Jacob, is about to die, or has just died. And so Joseph's brothers, they're scared. They think, well, now that that Jacob's dead, uh, Joseph is going to seek retaliation and revenge upon us for the evil we've done to him. This is the way humans act, right? Uh, He was just being nice to us as long as our father was alive. We tried to kill Joseph and we sold him into slavery, so now he's going to retaliate against us and kill all of us. That's how humans behave, right? This is what we do. This is human civilization and culture. But what does Joseph do? In Genesis 50, verse 20, he says to them, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it or used it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. (laughs) I will provide for you and your little ones. He's not going to kill them. He's going to provide for them, protect for them, protect them. Do you see the other way out? Joseph forgave. Here's the truth of Genesis and the truth of the Bible. Human rivalry and violence, it's everywhere. But it does not always need to end in either the continual escalation of violence till it just consumes everybody, or the sacrificial scapegoat victim so that there can be a temporary peace. There's another way out. And this other way out is the way of God. Uh, It's the way of forgiveness. It's the way that Joseph reveals here. Ultimately, finally, perfectly, this is the way revealed by Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Notice well, uh, Genesis ends the way Genesis begins. Go back and listen to some of the opening episodes in Genesis 1, um, where God brings good out of evil. Uh, you may recall opening lines of Genesis, when properly understood in their historical, cultural context. Uh, the, the opening lines are ominous, they're chaotic, they're dark. Uh, They border on a description of evil. But God steps in and brings light and order out of the mess. He brings good out of it. So that at the end of the creation account, God looks at all that he had made and says it was very good. 
And that's what Genesis 50 verse 20 is reminding us of. The book ends the way it begins. These are the bookends of Genesis. Uh, Joseph's brothers perform one evil action after another, but God steps into that mess and brings something good out of it so that many people's lives are saved. That's the point. God wants to save lives, not destroy them. God wants life, not death. It's we humans who kill, accuse, blame, and destroy in the attempt for peace. (laughs) But God shows another way, which is the way of love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And it's the way of God, it's the way of Joseph, it's the way of Jesus, and this is the theme of Genesis, how God brings good out of evil, healing and reconciliation out of hate and anger. And he does this not through sacrifice and violence, but through love and forgiveness. Look, we're going to see some more this next week. When we turn to look at a passage from the Gospels, make sure you join us then as we see really how Jesus reveals this to us. It's revealed in almost every event in the life of Jesus. We'll look at one in particular. And don't forget, you only have 10 days or so left to be eligible to get a free one-year membership from me as a gift to redeeminggod.com. And you can be a potential receiver of this gift by becoming a member of the Hope or Love membership levels. Got to join by Christmas Eve for a chance to have your membership fees refunded for the entire year. Uh, Now, even if you don't get one of those free one-year memberships, you'll still get about $1,000 worth of online theology courses, e-books, and other things over this coming year. So it's still a great deal. And uh, by, by becoming a member, you also help support my work and my ministry and my writing, help cover some of my expenses so that I can keep publishing my podcast and my blog posts and writing my books. Anyway, all of these things are your gifts to me and my gifts to you uh, for this coming year. And you can become a member by going to redeeminggod.com slash register to join now. So thanks for listening. And uh, today's closing sign-off line comes from... Steve Daner. Thank you, Steve. Here it is. Grace to you and peace out.